Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. We're so lucky. Does anybody feel that when they come in this room? Yes. Especially, I feel this when I'm walking down the path to come up here. It's incredible. <laughs> it's just, it's so amazing. Last night, you know what happened last night? No. I, I gave a talk. For those of you who are here, busy, you know, and then lots of people wanting to talk with me. You know. So I, I always try to find strategies to sneak away <laughs> at the end, you know. So I decided, okay, there was a lot of people like lined up to talk to me. And I said, I just need a glass of water. So I got a glass of water. And then I just went out the back. And I put on my shoes and I just went out. And then I got 20 steps away. And it was pitch black. It was so dark. And I didn't have a flashlight. So then I thought I could either go back and explain <laughs> that I had left and that now I need a flashlight and then somebody would have to accompany me and then I would have to talk more. Or I would just, like, just go out in the dark and risk injuring myself. Uh, so I decided to risk injuring myself. <laughs> so I went, I went down the path, and um, then, about ten steps in, somebody had placed uh, upside-down oyster shells all along the path. So that even though it's pitch black, you can just make out the shells. It's so beautiful. Well, they really shine. They really shine. Yeah. Well, there wasn't any moonlight, but they really did shine. And uh, there's a few moments where they disappeared, and I, I, I hugged trees <laughs> unintentionally. Um, so, last night was really fun, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Isn't it nice to kind of break up the group and have lots of people? Um, so what I, I wanted to do for the last part of the morning was explain last night. <laughs> and just kind of go through it really simply to kind of understand how it's related to what we've been talking about. It's also important to know that this idea of rethinking the, the Four Noble Truths is not my idea. Uh, there's a, a scholar who's not alive anymore from Australia named Woodward, another scholar who's a philologist, a mid-Indo-Aryan philologist, named K.R. Norman, whose work I love. 
Oh, this is, there's probably not that many people who are mid-Indo-Aryan philologists. <laughs> like, I think there's one. A philologist is somebody who studies the, the, the development of a language within the context of the culture it was developed in. So he studies mid-Indo-Aryan languages, of which Pali is a language. In other words, he studies the Pali canon, which is the canon that hold, which is the Buddha's teachings codified, written down. But and he's a very interesting guy because he's a little bit arrogant, and his attitude is. If you're going to read the Buddha's teachings, the only person you should pay attention to is me. Because I'm a philologist, so I understand how those words were used in the culture at the time. And the Buddha always used different words to explain different things depending on who the person was. So if you don't, and, and the dialect has been maintained. So if you can understand the different dialects, you can get the nuanced, ironic ways the Buddha taught. Right? And then building on K.R. Uh, Norman's work is a, a, a scholar who's still alive, whose work I admire, a guy named Richard Gombrich. And building on Richard Gombrich's work is another British teacher named Stephen Batchelor, mm -hmm. who, whose work I follow really, really closely. Mm -hmm. So they have all developed this, these ideas. I'm just taking them in a kind of different, a different direction. Um, so uh, the basic idea is, is how to find the core teachings of the Buddha independent of Buddhism. Because the word Buddhism is 150 years old. It was created by academics trying to explain what the Buddha taught. But if you go to a Buddhist country, there isn't Buddhism. There's the Dharma. The Buddhist teaching is called Dharma. So the idea of Buddhism is a new idea, actually. So what I've been asking is, how can we re-understand, how can we understand the core teachings, but as a series of practices rather than as a set of beliefs. Okay. And that's where this idea comes from, of rethinking the Four Noble Truths. Because to make something more religious, you have to have a truth. Capital T, truth, right? And when you say the Four Noble Truths, it makes you feel like, oh, one day you're going to have insight into the Four Truths. But that way of talking is a set of propositions. It's a belief system. You should believe the Four Noble Truths. So this philologist named K.R. Norman, in a paper in 1983, I'll explain it to you so you don't have to read it, basically argues that the Buddha never taught the Four Noble Truths. That the words noble truth were added based on a study of language after the Buddha's death. The Buddha wouldn't have taught the Four Noble Truths. Which, if you're a Buddhist, that is like scholarship that really throws a wrench in your belief system. 
So there's this, been this idea sort of flushed out much more recently by Stephen Batchelor of thinking of the truths as tasks, yeah. as something you do. Okay? So the setup in the text that we've been reading, and you can see it right here, is this is dukkha, this is the arising, this is the ceasing, and this is the path. Can everybody see that pattern? Mm-hmm. Right. And I really like the idea of this being the four strands of the, nu- the nucleic acid that makes up the DNA of the Dharma. Um, also, culturally, we would call this a meme. This is the, the core meme of Buddhism, of the Dharma. A meme is... A meme is to culture what a gene is to genetics. So a meme is uh, something that replicates within a culture that forms its core. So the core meme of this practice we're engaging in is made of these four tasks. Is this clear? Yeah. The first task is... This is dukkha. That's not something you believe in. Like, life is a bummer. Right? In other words, it it means this is life. This is life. When you sit, and it's not the way you want it to be, it's not peaceful, then this is life. This is it. This is it. Look around the room. All these faces. The light. This is it. This is your life. But human beings need life to have so much more than this. Right? So we posit that there's something else that makes life happen. The Buddha felt that the language of God, the language of the soul, the language of life after death, was all storytelling that didn't resolve the issue of dukkha. But he didn't deny that there was God. He didn't say there's no God. He wasn't an atheist. Uh, But he also felt that if you ask the question, what's God? What happens when I die? What, happens, what happened before I was born? Is there a soul? Is it the same as the body or not the same as the body? He felt like these were questions that should be put aside. It was a very radical thing, I think. He felt like those questions were not necessary for transforming dukkha. And he wouldn't answer questions about any of those categories. In other words, the Buddha thought of himself as a physician, not as somebody starting a religion. And you could argue that Jesus also did not think of himself as somebody starting a religion. The Buddha and Jesus might be similar as human beings who were trying to create a new kind of culture. And the core practice of the culture begins 
with embracing life, not adding on to it. Then the second piece is the arising. Oh, embrace. The, the word here for knowing suffering is parinyea. A party means uh, to get around something, and nyea means to, uh, to know. Uh, so one way of translating parinyea usually is comprehend, to comprehend suffering. But I like the word embrace, because there's a sense of, it, it's, a, it, it's a way of knowing something in the way that you would know a piece of music. It's not to know about the thing. You know, does anybody here have some piece, a piece of music that they really, they're really touched by? And you really know that piece of music. But you don't necessarily need to know it analytically, right? You don't need to know the stats. Right? You just, you know it. So this is what parinyeya means. To know suffering the way you know art, a piece of art. Um, the Zen teacher Shunru Suzuki says, so, the secret is just to say yes and to jump off from here. Then there will be no problem. It means being always yourself without sticking to an old self. Do you hear that? Embracing dukkha, what does it mean? It means always saying yes. Embracing your life and not sticking. So, and again, in a moment, not sticking to your old self. Not sticking to your old self. Without sticking to an old self. Then, number two, samudaya, is to notice that we all biologically have innate reactivity. And so we need tools in order to not reinforce that reactivity, to recognize when we're reacting, and to let go of our reactivity. So last night, we called the first one E. Remember that, Elsa? Mm-hmm. You can write that down. So E is embrace suffering. L is let go of the arising of reactivity. What I'd like to suggest is that we collapse those two. In other words, how do you embrace something and let go of it at the same time. Because I don't want you to see this and say, oh yeah, first I have to embrace something, then I have to let go of it. Actually, you embrace something and you let go at the same time. This is what we're doing in meditation practice. Boredom's arising, you're allowing the boredom, and you're letting go of your reaction to it at the same time. Your foot's falling asleep, you embrace the foot falling asleep, and you let go of your reactivity. And the reactivity is crazy.
And then the third piece, S, Elsa, Elsa, S is stopping. Uh, the word here is uh, niroda. Um, in, in the original, it's niroda sachi karoti, which means uh, behold the ceasing. It's very interesting, isn't it? Behold, like really know, really know the stopping. So I suggested that in the meditation this morning, do you remember? When I said, when you're caught and you come back to the breath, know what that feels like to be uncaught. And that is deathless. Not being dead. Right? Without death. When you're caught, you're dead. You're dead. So to not be dead is to be back with your breathing again. And when you don't buy in to whatever you're caught in, it stops. Do you notice this? So like you're caught in something, it's so real, you come back to the breath, it comes back again, come back to the breath, comes back again, and then it doesn't come back. Yeah, the grip loosens, and then whatever you were so, whatever was so important, it's gone. Is there? Yeah. So I'm looking at a rising and ceasing, and then for what I'm, I'm attributing it also to the inhale and the exhale in yoga. Yep. Is that intentional? Is is that? Bad? You mean like things arise on the inhale and leave on the exhale? I'm just wondering if like the order of these, there's a parallel in yoga. You get the sensation, you breathe, you release. Yeah. You go on a little sure. Yeah. You could say that probably most of our thoughts seem to arise on the inhale. The inhale seems to be like the current that most of our thoughts arrive. Like the top of the pranic pattern is really like lots of ideas. And the exhale is like... The inhale is like summer. Top of the inhale is like summer. Flowers... Fruits on the trees. The bottom of the exhale is like the dead of winter on Cortez Island. Nothing to pick. Mm-hmm. So no, we'd all rather be like way up here in ideal land. But nirodha, the ceasing, to really know what it feels like to stop. Do you understand what I mean by that? Know what it feels like to stop. And then a path opens up. The moment that you stop is called nirvana. It's the extinguishing of craving, of reactivity. But nirvana is impermanent. So nirvana is the moment that you've relinquished the grasping and it changes. And that's why nirvana is not the goal of practice. It's the beginning of practice. When there's nirvana, 
there is a clearing for a path to open up. In other words, nirvana is the beginning of the path, not the end of the path. Hopefully this is turning your idea of nirvana upside down. So nirvana is the clearing that opens up. The word nirvana literally means to extinguish. Right? It's the stopping, it's the cessation of the reactivity. Is it clearing for more dukkha? It's clearing for whatever is going to come for your life. It can be dukkha. We're, we're not there yet, so let's not say what it is. He gets there. He gets there later in this text. And that the path is cultivated uniquely by each person. And this is very frustrating if you want this to be a religion that tells you this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. But actually, the path is cultivated uniquely by each person from this spaciousness that's opened up. When somebody says something to you that's hard to hear, you're full of reactivity. Defensive. Does anybody get like this? <laughs> some people respond by blaming outwardly, and some people respond by turning the blame inward. This is our reactivity. This is our craving. Craving for existence, blaming out there, and craving for non-existence, blaming in here. Or craving for stimulation, which is just avoiding the whole thing altogether and watching TV. So, how is it possible when somebody says something to you that's hard to hear, that you're able to notice your reactivity? And then, if you then say something stupid to them, like, oh, you jerk, you did the same thing. You stop and you notice that. And then you don't beat yourself up about it. Oh, yeah, that's the reactivity. And then you say, you know what, I can't talk about this right now. And then you go for a walk. Because you can't talk about it right now. But then you have enough courage that you keep staying with it. And then you say, okay, now I can talk about it. And when you said that to me, it really, really, it really, really hurt. And I'm really embarrassed, actually. Or uh, I'm really ashamed that I did that to you. It's really hard for me to hear. But I, I'm, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. And this is mindfulness in action. And this is nonviolence. In other words, it's not like a static thing. And what I want to argue this morning, which I tried to last night, is that that is nirvana in action. The cessation of the grasping for me to maintain my position. Or, maybe, it's really important you maintain your position. And your work is to figure out how to clearly maintain your position based on articulating what you feel in the moment. 
Or maybe you're so terrified, you're so terrified to actually say what you feel. Because maybe, I'm making these things up, but maybe you're the kind of person where you were a therapist for your parents. So you really know how to tune in to what other people are feeling. So then as an adult, you choose people where you can really help them. And you can be a really good guide and a good therapist to them. But then you lose track of what you feel. Well, it will come back to haunt you. Because you're not in a relationship with somebody. You're just tuned into their needs. People argue that this is more the case with women. But I don't think that's true. That's the argument people always make when I say that. But I don't think that's true. I think we all do it in different ways. Lose track of ourselves. So sometimes I think mindfulness meditation on the breath is basically just keeping track of how you feel. And it's a practice of hygiene. You know how you have to floss every day? But every day when you sit, you know, you'll kind of replay what's going on in your life. And just that is an important thing to stay connected to. And then the most amazing thing happens is when you take the risk of listening deeply to somebody, a path opens up. Maybe it's not the path you wanted. Maybe you might say, whoa, now I see really clearly and I shouldn't be in this relationship anymore. Or someone else says to you, now I see really clearly and I shouldn't be in this relationship anymore. Or maybe you might say, now I see really clearly and I'm going to put more of myself into this relationship. So this is what I mean by embracing and letting go at the same time. And then when you do that, a path opens up. And then the Buddha describes the path. He says, the path is, the path has eight branches. Appropriate seeing, appropriate thinking, appropriate communication, appropriate action, appropriate livelihood, appropriate effort, appropriate mindfulness, and appropriate uh, concentration. That's the path. Are there any questions? Yes. Nadia. Um, it seems like a lot of the practice is always coming back to the breath to get away from the stories and like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just wondering if you could clarify um, when it is appropriate to think. So I feel like I constantly am feeling that I need to come back to my breath and that the thinking is the enemy. And that when is there a moment when the thinking is what you're supposed to be doing? When you're in formal meditation, uh, don't think so much. 
Yeah. And then when you get up, your thinking will have more clarity because there's more space around it. And then you should really think. And, you're think. and you should do really good philosophy. And you should do really good analysis. Yeah. And you should be really discerning. But what happens is, is there's more stability in your emotions. So you can think more clearly. And your thinking becomes sharper so that you can see what's real and what's not real. What belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you. Yeah. So that nirvana then is really um, the freedom to choose when you are going to be searching for happiness, which mm -hmm. people think it is, but it's really, yeah. isn't it really nirvana is freedom? Yeah. To make those choices? Yeah. Yeah. I used to, I don't do it anymore, but my definition of nirvana used to be the freedom to change your mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's the deepest. People argue it, because it doesn't sound spiritual for me to say this. Like, I could never get the same gigs as Eckhart Tolle if I say this. <laughs> but I think that deeper than enlightenment is the, the ability to change your mind. To actually see that something you were thinking isn't, isn't actually the way to go. And of course, the, 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 other, the other side of that coin is, to, is the confidence to actually say what you believe. Yeah. Yeah. How can you be in much of this if you don't hold your ground? Because the, the point is, is that you see the ground as tentative. This is what we're going to talk about tomorrow. You see that the ground is tentative. The ground is only the ground in those conditions. And in other